I'm Corey Astle. And I'm Kyle Salmon. Welcome to Conservative Minds, a podcast dedicated to examining conservative intellectual history to determine the core values of American conservatism. What does it mean to call yourself a conservative? What did it mean in prior times? And how did we get where we are today? We explore these questions and more by turning to conservative political thinkers from the past and present. Each episode, we select readings and conduct a discussion to share with you our investigation. If you want to join the discussion, like us on Facebook or follow us on Twitter at @consminds. That's at C-O-N-S-M-I-N-D-S. For episode five, we read Statecraft as Soulcraft by George Will from 1983. George Will was born in Champaign, Illinois in 1941. His father is a professor of philosophy at the University of Illinois at Ur- Urbana-Champaign. Will himself graduated from Trinity College in Hartford, Connecticut in 1962 with a degree in religion. Later, he studied philosophy, politics, and economics at Magdalen College, Oxford, and continued his studies at Princeton, from which he received his MA and PhD in politics. His PhD dissertation in 1968 was entitled, Beyond the Reach of Majorities, Closed Questions in the Open Society. From 1970 to 1972, Will served on the staff of Republican Senator Gordon Allett from Colorado. He then taught political philosophy at Michigan State University and at the University of Toronto, and also served as an editor for the National Review from 1972 to 1978. He began writing a syndicated column for the Washington Post in 1974 and won the Pulitzer Prize for commentary in 77. Will has written a number of books, including two best-selling books on baseball, three on political political philosophy, and has published 11 compilations of his columns from the Washington Post and various book reviews and lectures. He's also a founding member of the panel on ABC's This Week with David Brinkley, which is now This Week with George Stephanopoulos, uh, before becoming a Fox News contributor from 2013 to 2017. The book we're reading today was published in 1983. In the intro, he puts forward this question. He says, the first question of government is, how should we live and what kind of people do we want our citizens to be? And that's going to guide his thinking. What he believes his main thesis in summary is uh, conservative political philosophy should be characterized by a concern to cultivate uh, the good in its citizens to show sort of, he starts out to show by showing the heritage of his thinking. He kind of reaches back to the ancients who particularly Aristotle, who viewed the development of virtue as purpose of politics. He contrasts the Aristotelian view with modern thought, um, Hobbes, Locke, Bentham, Madison, that we more or less operate under now, which has much more of an attitude of humans control their own destiny. Um, We can shed the culture and religion and society and overcome through science and and technology. I think Will sees the role of government as as kind of pushing back on that, as um, proactively shaping virtue and excellence in his citizens more along the lines of the Aristotelian view. And so I think in this book, he explains why and lays out his vision. Yeah, it's, um, it's interesting. He says someplace in this book that uh, all political philosophy is a series of footnotes leading back to Plato. And yeah, <laughs> it uh, already in the, in the four books we've read, the, uh, it's clear, and maybe this is just a part of conservative political philosophy, but they all go back to the ancients in some way. 
Um, but it's interesting how the, those paths diverge after you leave ancient Greece. And you know, Will's mm-hmm. definitely working on something here that's different than what, say, Barry Goldwater was talking about in our first two episodes. It's also interesting that like, uh, everybody seems to have a different point of departure where things started to go wrong. You know, for, right. for Weaver, it was the Middle Ages with, with uh, dominalism. And for Will, it seems to be the Enlightenment with uh, mm-hmm. Machiavelli and Hobbes and, and, and the growth of the idea that man is self-interested. That's all there is. And mm-hmm. we should build our governments around that. I also think it's pretty interesting that they kind of see the same pathologies in society that they don't like. And that is rampant consumerism, just selfishness, self-absorption. Like you said, Weaver will point back and say, oh, this began with nominalism. He points back and says it begins with the Enlightenment. And you have, let's say, Marxists who point back and say, oh, it began with capitalism. Right. <laughs> you know? so it's, all, it's always something. <laughs> Maybe people who are more um, from a faith-based perspective would say, oh, it began with with uh, the fall or whatever. <laughs> right, so yeah. It's almost like we all agree that what at least a handful of the problems are in society. And now we're going to look back and say, well, what was the cause? And we want to push back. Or, I, I guess that's uh, the nature of political philosophy it. books. There's always, they all seem declinist and pessimistic, but I guess if you didn't think something was wrong, you wouldn't write. If it was, if you were just saying, well, you know, everything's pretty good in society. Uh, mm-hmm. We're all doing, living our best lives here. So there's not much of a book in that. <laughs> right. <laughs> you, have, right, right. You, you have to be a not little, not much of a project. Yeah. You have to be a little <laughs> disturbed at something that's going on out there. Yeah. I think he, he gets right away into this theme of, the triumph of individualism was maybe a necessary correction. You know, the growth of individual rights and especially in our American constitution, the, the primacy of individual rights. And it's, I think he, he believes they're necessary, but they're not all there is. Um, mm-hmm. And it's not, you know, once you've established that bill of rights and people are free, that's not the end. You know, we're, we should still keep working for excellence. We should be uh, improving ourselves beyond just, well, the government can't stop me from doing this. It's got to be okay, but what are you doing? You know, um, are you doing something good? An important philosophical question, but I think it's a harder one to develop as a matter of politics. It's easy to say to the government, well, you can't do this. You can't lock people up for saying things. You can't censor. You can't have a state religion. But then beyond that, well, what is the government supposed to do to make the good? And he thinks something, but uh, I think a lot of people on the more libertarian side of things these days would say, okay, but how do you know they're doing the right thing? Mm -hmm. How can Mm -hmm. we, how can we trust the government with all the various screw ups they've had over the years and misdirections and bad ideas and outright, you know, some folks in government who are purposely doing things that we think are wrong. How can you say, well, they're going to lead us to be better citizens. It really struck me that this book is almost a direct frontal attack on on that libertarian, more, you know, Goldwater style thinking of even, even our reading from last time, John Locke, who view government, the role of government as extremely limited. And to the extent that it's active at all, it's really preserving freedom, preserving property and enhancing uh, freedom. George Wills is saying direct, making a direct argument against that saying, no, that's not the purpose of, it's not the purpose of government. It's not the purpose of our society or political philosophy. Instead, our, our point of departure isn't how, how, what's the least we can do? Our point of departure is what can the government do to develop and cultivate good citizens? What, what can the government do to cultivate virtue 
and excellence and point people in a direction that will strengthen society and, and build it with, from, from within so that we can create uh, happy, productive, fulfilled citizens. And that's just completely different, again, from, like you said, from the, from the libertarian view of let's just keep it simple, let's keep it minimal. We're just going to protect people from harming one another, you know, more the Hobbes, Hobbesian view of the world. George Will completely rejects, says we're more than just selfish, self-interested brutes bumping into one another. Instead, you know, we have this uh, potential for greater fulfillment and development. And that's exactly the work of government. And also I'll say that that also contrasts with, let's say, I think the more contemporary, certainly liberalism, is, uh, who views the role of government as distributing material wealth and doing the most, more of a utilitarian bent of doing the most good for the most number of people, s- solving material inequities. That also is very different. And George, and George Will even rejects that and says, uh, that's not, the role of government isn't to step back and just act as, as mediator and redistributionist when it comes to material goods and, and money taxes. It has a very active kind of paternalistic role to play in making sure that citizens become the best that they can be, develop these virtues. When you first hear the rejection of uh, the diminishing tiny government, you think this is this is a leftist book. But he's also but also says later on in chapter six, he says, a just society is not one in which the allocation of wealth, opportunity, and status is equal. Rather, it's one in which the inequalities are reasonably related to reasonable social goals. So here, mm-hmm. that's a more conservative statement too. And it's, mm-hmm. he's not, like you said, he's not concerned with making sure everyone has the proper amount of money. He's concerned with making sure people are leading the right lives, the best lives that they can. So mm-hmm. the focus on virtue is definitely alien to leftist political philosophy. They don't really seem to care about that except as they define virtue as obeying their philosophy. And here, I mean, he does sort of, he does get to the uh, focus on virtue that I think a lot of the founding fathers would recognize and how they, I mean, I always think of my state's motto as uh, virtue, liberty, and independence. I think that's not just a collection of three things that are nice. I think virtue and liberty, they have to coexist because a, a society that has tons of liberty without any virtue, which is, I think, where Will would say we're going now or are now, is just that's just libertinism. That's not liberty. You know, it's it's just people running around mm-hmm. satisfying their fleeting, you know, uh, desires. Uh, not really building towards anything. Not living according to any code. Just having fun, doing a lot of drugs, having a lot of sex. Everything's happy. <laughs> but the virtue is. I mean, people in the in the founding era would say you can have this liberty, but it's because we are now that we're an enlightened people, we're a virtuous people. The self-evident ideas of the enlightenment that on which we founded this country will ensure that this liberty is not misused. Mm-hmm. And then, uh, of course, Will gets into that a bit and says, even by a couple of generations later, after America's founding, people were diverting from the ideas of the founders because they're not, I think he would say the government wasn't not enforcing them, but encouraging them enough. They were just letting people do what they thought was self-evident, which is to follow these enlightenment ideals. They weren't. So the thing started to get mm-hmm. off the rails right away. Mm-hmm. Is that how you read it? Yeah. Yeah, I think so. And, um, I think that it's, it's, I think we're finding here too, that, that liberty and virtue, they have to coexist, but they're also a little bit in tension. I think that is really com- what come came out in, in this George Will book to me is, 
at least to the extent that government's going to get involved. It can't, the government can focus on expanding liberty. The government can focus on uh, cultivating virtue. But those are, there's going to be some tension there because if we're going to develop virtue, it's going to have to push in a direction really away from more liberty and more freedom. It's, it's a limiting exercise. Mm-hmm. And I hadn't really thought of it in those terms uh, until reading this book. And so what really mm-hmm. popped in my mind is, okay, well, that's interesting. Then to, I have two questions for you. Number one, and he, he gets to this, but number one is, okay, what are the, what exactly are the virtues that we want to develop and uh, who gets to choose them? Right. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's the hard part, hard part. I think anybody in today's discourse who's familiar with just our American ideas of liberty would say that, you know, okay, we're going to promote virtue. Who gets to decide who's virtuous? Yeah. And I think there's a lot of people in, in Washington and in the state capitals who, if asked, if we asked them their idea of virtue, we wouldn't agree with it. So maybe we don't, mm-hmm. maybe we don't want those folks in charge. He gets into that. I mean, every policy is a choice. It's not, but how do you keep people once, once they have that power, how do you keep them on the straight and narrow? Because I don't mm-hmm. I, personally, mm-hmm. I don't, I think eventually it goes, it goes wrong. So let's ask Will, you know, those questions in, in chapter, I think it's chapter four. Yes. He says, the primary business of conservatism is the preservation of the social order. The state must play a central role in ensuring minimum moral continuity. Conservatives should champion Aristotelian forms of excellence, law, culture, government. And we'll see how that cashes out in a later chapter when he talks about uh, virtue. He says it's selfless citizenship, it's moderation, it's social sympathy, willingness to sacrifice private desires for public ends, equality of opportunity, it's neighborliness, it's equitable material allocation, it's happiness, it's social cohesion, and it's justice. Now, you and I should unpack each one of those in just a second. My mind quickly goes to who gets to kind of create, draw the parameters for all of this. And this really jumped out at me because he says, these principles must be derived from a sense of national purpose and from evidence as to how law can contribute to fulfill those purposes. And he asks him his own self, where should we draw the line? And he says, I don't know, Yeah, but <laughs> it's more dangerous not to draw the line. And I'm like, yeah, well, that's really interesting. At least that, I mean, I, I thought that was very intellectually honest. Mm-hmm. How do you draw the line? I don't know. So you're gonna have to have a, a battle in the political arena to decide. Yeah. And I think that's where uh, conservatism is harder than uh, libertarianism or socialism to enact as a, as a force because it, those two both have lines that are just way off in one direction or the other. But if you're trying to you know, preserve, how much do you preserve? And it's like you said, not like a fly in amber, right? We're going to accept that society changes. Yeah, drawing that line, that takes a lot of judgment, which I think the average American might say that politicians don't have the best judgment every time. Right. And they certainly view it differently. And that's, I think, fast forward to 2018, I feel like much more of our political political focus today is has, has less to do actually with with taxes and much more to do with culture mm-hmm. you know maybe, maybe those are not the public policy issues that are being debated say in congress but in terms of why did people vote for donald trump uh, i think it has a lot less to do with trump's position on the issues and much more to do with how his vision of american culture and and our society and and what we've lost uh, or yeah. what we need to return to. American carnage. Yeah. So the phrase from his uh, 
inaugural address that just stood out. Yeah, if you if that maybe I think you're right. I think if your vision of, of America is one of declining culture, of alienating culture, that played a bigger role than whatever you think about capital gains tax. Right. And so to to the question of where do you draw the line? Well, I I think that is maybe the most contentious and active debate that goes on every day. So I think it's 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 more than just difficult. It's it's essentially the entire practice of politics. Yeah, but Will makes a good point also that uh, by refusing to do anything, you're you're making a choice. Also, mm-hmm. um, you're ceding the field to those who want to do something. And I mean, he mentions the abortion debate quite a few times, which is Roe v. Wade was uh, about ten years old when he wrote this book. Plenty of people still remembered the time when abortion was a topic that was going on in state legislatures, not in courts. I think he calls out the disingenuousness of the pro-choice movement saying, well, we're not making a choice. We're just saying, you know, people can do what they want. And that's that's a choice. On our side, when we do something similar with, you know, well, we're not telling people how to live. Well, then you're, you're telling them something by not telling them is what I think Will mm-hmm. would say. Mm-hmm. And a government that doesn't endorse anything virtuous or unvirtuous is seeding the field to unvirtue in, 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 unless a person by himself or in what's left of our community institutions comes up with virtue and a way to live, you know, but if, if he doesn't have that strength or that community connection, what you're doing by doing nothing is, is saying, you know, go figure it out, you know, and, uh, not everyone's capable. Right. And then we have the, the kind of moral and societal decline of the type that Weaver sees and will sees where in the long run, it's not tenable. It's not tenable for Goldwater to say, Hey, look, it's not up to me what moral aims each citizen should have. You know, that's up to her. That's up to him to decide. Government has no role to play. Government's just there to protect them, keep them safe, and ensure as much freedom as possible. Now, what they think is right or wrong, look, that's not my business. I honestly don't care. Instead, let everyone decide because we we know that everyone will disagree. People have different views, and the best we can do is to just let people is to create some guardrails and let people live the way that they want to. Will says, okay, you can do that, but if you do, you should fully expect societal decline, a race to the bottom of consumerism and a society driven by radical individualism that really does not account for all of these other aspects of the human well-being that that go beyond mere uh, material well-being. And back to Weaver, you know, people need meaning in their lives. They need friendships. They need family. They need, you know, Burke's uh, little platoons, local school district, Kiwanis Club, the Little League baseball team. Um, we we need these uh, associations. We need to cultivate more than just self-interested radical individualism in order to be happy and fulfilled and, and to build a society that can last. Yeah, and I think I think Will's definition of freedom probably set Goldwater's teeth on edge too. I mean, the, the one quote I copied into my notes here was freedom is not only the absence of external constraints. It is also the absence of internal irresistible compulsions, unmanageable passions and uncensorable appetites. Mm. Freedom requires reflective choices about life. I think Goldwater would say you can reflect on your own. It's not the government's place to tell you which of your passions are unmanageable, which of your appetites should be censored. And Will's disagreeing with that pretty vehemently 
And it also it really makes you wonder how could both of these be conservative? Yeah, but I, was I think this is the reason we're doing this project. I was thinking is. that a lot through it. What I was reading it like these guys are on the same side too. It's strange. Uh, <laughs> but come to such radically different um, conclusions. So we see the internal and kind of the internal contrasts um, even within uh, among conservatives. But can we can we unpack a couple of these because uh, I want to hear your thoughts on. He says policy should be evaluated based on fundamental values. Okay, what are the fundamental values? Selfless citizenship. We can go along with that. That's not a that's not a problem. Sure. Temperateness. Well, does that mean not not as many video games? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> certainly. Farsightedness. I mean, yeah that that would be nice for us. That's, that's ideal for yeah for any system. <laughs> Neighborliness. I mean, I, I of course would am up for that. How exactly does the government develop neighborliness? Yeah, it's a good idea. I just don't, yeah, I don't, I don't see the, how Washington can make it happen. I mean, he's definitely getting at a thing that a lot of us feel, you know, atomization, uh, yeah. social isolation. And I, I think some of that's just changing times in technology. You know, I mean, people used to, you hear people of our parents' generation talk about, it. everyone used to be on the street and they talk to each other. It's like, wait, nobody had air conditioning. You know, I mean, yeah. that's part of the reason. Nobody have video games, so you played outside because there's nothing to do inside. Uh-huh. So, I mean, some of that's almost inevitable. And a lot of conservative complaints always sound like old man's complaints. I see some of these, what you, you talk about, Kiwanis and, uh, you know, Freemasons and Oddfellows and whatnot, that p- people used to get together in a, some sort of a lodge and, you know, talk to each other once a mm-hmm. month or twice a month. And those are good things. Some of that's, I think being recreated on the internet in just different ways. I mean, I think, and some of it adds to greater social weirdness because you can connect with any sort of person anywhere. Mm-hmm. You know, if you, if you were an oddball in your town, there's another oddball in another state who wants to talk to you, but it's, it's yeah. still a, it's still a community and it's, it's just a, like a, it's a less local community, but it's a, People are still getting together, talking about things. I mean, we yell at each other all day online. Um, mm-hmm. I, I'm, no, you're right. That's that, that's an interesting con- um, that, that's an interesting um, simile there. Um, that strikes me as both completely right and also obviously there's differences because mm-hmm. let's say you and I probably it's a good chance you and I never would have gotten to know each other and start this podcast living in different states. Mm-hmm. If it wasn't for the access to internet, you know, doing a podcast. On the other hand, I, so so I think that definitely those conversations are happening, and I think, believe it or not, we 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 both have seen actually quality, productive conversations happen on Facebook. It, it does happen <laughs> <laughs> now and yeah. again. But what you're, I think, probably what you're missing from prior times, you would be a member of the local church or or Kiwanis, whatever, is the service to one another. So online, it's kind of like a an intellectual, personal conversation a connection, but it it doesn't have the element of, you know, let's go build a barn together or something like that, or or let's clean up the park. You know, we're trying to improve our community. Instead, yes, you're finding people of like minds, but it's still in such an atomized and individualistic environment mm-hmm. where you, you miss out on on the value that social capital that's created by groups you know, person to person. Yeah. I think it also, um, it doesn't stop social atomization as much as it looks like. I mean, people are talking to other people, but when you went to a, 
when you went to a church or a fraternal group in those days, um, you weren't talking to only people you agree with. And also, if you were an oddball, you were talking to normal people at that point, which might make you a little right, more normal. Yes. You know, mm-hmm. now every kind of perversion, sexual or otherwise, has a group. And mm-hmm. it, it might make people turn more into themselves and less... Mm-hmm. Reinforce. Yeah, where I think before you you might have some weird ideas, but boy, when you went down to the Elks Club, nobody else really was interested in that. And you might just talk about normal things. You know, it might make... Yeah, and your ability to self-select, it just wasn't available. Yeah, you go to church, you're going to go to church with all the other parishioners. Everyone else who's at church who maybe come from similar walks of life, but definitely have different attitudes about the world and different personalities where online you can just laser focus, self-select and say, I only want to deal with these, this niche of a niche of a niche Mm -hmm. slice of the world. And we're going to reinforce each other's views or, or reinforce each other's perversions or pathologies. Yeah. And that, that comes back to something Will was talking about. Um, Strict focus on rights leads us to associate liberty with dissent. If you're exercising your rights, you're necessarily dissenting against whatever the government or society wants you to do. And Mm -hmm. I think he's saying, well, you don't always have to dissent. It's good to have these rights, but sometimes there's value in social cohesion. And, you know, we shouldn't look upon perennial rebel as the, the guide to how to live in liberal democracy. Sometimes you can go along. Sometimes it's good to have social cohesion and, and people agreeing. You don't have to make a stink about everything. Mm-hmm. I thought, well, that's that, that's interesting. Um, I definitely thought about it the way he was saying we shouldn't in thinking, sure, you know, you've got your bill of rights. That means you can say whatever you want. No one, no one cares if you say something nice. Uh, it's it's about protecting if you say something against the government or against society. Yeah. He's saying maybe we should be a little more for society. I don't know. Yeah, and what are the what are the implications more broadly to society if we all walk around in our bubble with our little force field where we can say and do and act basically however we want, however ridiculous or asinine or socially counterproductive, and say, Well, this is my this is my space, I keep you at arm's length and I can say what I want and do what I want and be who I want to be and you times that by three hundred and twenty five million and what kind of society do you yeah, have? Yeah, they, they have a society at all. These are good points that he's making. And I think they, I mean, he talks about how the government has to take into account human nature. And human nature is, we do want community, most of us. Most of us don't want to be hermits. Mm-hmm. Again, it, it, kind of, it kind of falls down on how do you get it. So I, I like a lot of what he's saying. I just can't really wrap my head around what, which, what law should we pass to make that happen. I'm not sure what the answer to that is. At least one of his answers is, and he goes in a very surprising direction, at least it was for me, and he says, uh, is uh, a welfare state. Mm. <laughs> right. That's one direction he takes it. Conservatism needs an affirmative doctrine of the welfare state to stay relevant and to achieve what he views as conservative means, conserving the society, conserving, conserving uh, social cohesion. How did you feel about that? Well, I mean, that <laughs> definitely doesn't sound like any of the conservatism we've heard for basically our entire lives. He, he makes, we well, made one good point is that conservatives created the welfare state. Men like Bismarck created the first social insurance structure sort of as a reaction to 
industrialization and also as sort of a hedge against socialism, which was growing in Germany at that time. And even even here, I mean, the first real welfare in the United States was Civil War pensions, which grew from we're going to give some money to those who were severely wounded in war to we're going to give money to anybody who fought for the Union for any reason, whether you're in there for mm-hmm. three months or three years. And I mean, part of that was that the federal government had too much money at the time and didn't know what to do with it, which is a, a weird artifact of that era. But also it sort of laid the groundwork for the idea of, well, you serve the country, you're going to get something uh, from the country. And I, I, that's kind of the, the, the weird beginnings of our welfare state. But I mean, I think he's, he's I think, I, I think he's half right, but I want to hear what you have to say. He, well, he seems to come through, come, come to the welfare state idea through the back door. And what I mean by that is, you know, usually you think in terms of, welfare state in terms of uh utilitarian ends you know we're trying to we're trying to maximize well material well-being to do that it's going to take some redistribution it's going to take some leveling here and some raising there but he comes at it through a completely different like i say like a back door because he says let's look at it through uh, through entitlements he says entitlements can do what private property cannot do and that's give everyone a stake in the stability and success of the social system now that, that is an interesting perspective, and I certainly have never thought of it from from that angle. So he says entitlements are good, not because in, in the welfare state of entitlements. By entitlements, we're talking about Social Security, Medicare, Medicaid. Now uh, uh, Obamacare. These are these are all goods for society, not because of the because of the distribution and the, the maximizing of material well being. Instead, it's good because Everyone now has a stake in the success of the society because if society fails, then their Medicare, re- their Medicare payments are not going to come through and their Social Security is not going to get paid. Yeah, I, I don't really buy that. I, I, <laughs> I feel like uh, a handout doesn't give you a stake in anything. It gives you an interest in the government continuing to exist, but I don't. I mean, he talked about farsightedness. I don't think people are that farsighted to say, well, then we need to put our government on a secure footing so I can continue to get this handout. <laughs> well, it certainly has not played out that way. No. I mean, <laughs> on a theoretical level, I think we could debate that. On a practical level, uh, I think that has been thoroughly discredited at this point. But anyway, who does it, who does it get? Who, who feels a, a deeper stake? Well, I guess those people who are on the much more receiving end as opposed to those who are on the, the, the net benefactors were, you know, the net beneficiaries have a bigger stake because if it doesn't work out, well, they're going to have to find a new way. Yeah. <laughs> I think there is something to the idea of, um, there's different kinds of welfare state too. And, uh, a lot of that early welfare state, whether it be Bismarck or Franklin Roosevelt was, was about rewarding work in a way that the market doesn't reward. So, you know, yep. Social yeah. security was, if you never work, you never get it. Unless you're, I mean, there's provisions for if you're disabled or a uh, survivor of somebody who did work and died young and that sort of thing. But the basic social security system is you work, you retire, you're going to get something from the government. And I think that's, that's something a lot of conservatives accept. And, you know, when we finally took power back from the Democrats, we never tried to repeal social security in the fifties. You know, we could have a long discussion on that, but, but I'd point out though, that I think that's still, you're talking about a market failure. And so you're still talking about fundamental fairness, which is back to 
the maximization of material well-being and making sure things are fair and that everybody has their share. I think that's very different than what he's trying to get at. Or he's he's he says, well, welfare state is indispensable to social cohesion and national strength. And I'm like, what does he mean by that exactly? Is it it's indispensable because if we're not you know redistributing money, then then we're not strong as a nation. Or I guess what he's trying to say is without the welfare state, we don't have the same level of commitment to each other because we kind of rise and fall together. And if, if, if we're not you know, putting our sh- collective shoulder to the wheel together, then goods and services, the services provided by the government are going to ultimately fail. I, I think that's what he's getting at. It, it's vague. I'd be interested to hear what yeah, you think, it's, but it's, it's still not super... Uh, persuasive for me but yeah i don't i don't really it doesn't make sense to me from that angle and the way i've been thinking about this lately too and just you know what this could because i think a lot of this ironically for will lines up with um the trump wing of the party's greater comfort when it comes to social programs because a lot of trumpism is rejection of reaganism and rejection of the idea Mm -hmm. that we should cut 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 get back to the basics and although Will is not a fan of the president these days, I think they would agree that we're not cutting these social programs or that they at least have purpose. Maybe they should be reordered in some way. So I've, I've been thinking about that lately. And I think there is a difference between programs that reward work and programs that reward or pay for poverty. And I think a lot of the New Deal programs were focused around the idea of we got to get men to work in those days of men and now everyone. We've got, and when they work, they've got to get paid. Mm-hmm. So it's sort of your, your great society programs are more like, well, some folks aren't working. Let's give them money. Yeah, and that, yeah. I think, uh, a lot of blue-collar conservatives rejected. And that, and I think that, that was part of the, the swing against Johnson-era liberalism. It's like, yo, we're working all day here. Why are we giving out money to people that don't work? Whereas, uh, the, mm-hmm. the Rooseveltian liberalism was more, look, you're, you're putting in an effort and maybe the market doesn't value that effort as much as we think it should so we're going to put our thumb on the scale a little bit and i think people are way more Mm -hmm. into that as a moral matter and i I think that makes more sense than the welfare is social cohesion yeah that's a great point and it seems like you know now that you say that it it occurs to me that new deal style of uh helping people who work to get that extra leg up and, and ensure a little bit more fairness that's kind of fast forward to today that that kind of is the compassionate conservatism, let's say, of of now, like uh, earned income tax credit or welfare to work policies. Basically, like yeah, if you if you'll do your very best, and it's still falling short of what we th- as society think is the baseline of what every citizen should enjoy. Okay, we'll give you that extra leg up. But that, that's interesting to draw the draw the kind of the heritage line back to the new deal and fast forward. And that's kind of, I, I think you're right that most conservatives today more or less feel that and way. I, it's kind of the prevailing. I didn't view. think of it until now, but at some point in this book, he says that there's not a big difference between FDR and Ronald Reagan. And I, I sort of uh, almost dropped the book at that point, but <laughs> th- maybe that's it. Maybe it's the new deal line uh, because Reagan was a new dealer in his youth. And he, I mean, he came to conservatism through Goldwater, became more interested in reigning in government and maybe seeing that it had gone too far in that direction. I guess there is a line there, and it's it maybe maybe the value of work and and that as a as a virtue. I think that I think if everybody's working, I think that does more for social cohesion than everybody having money. To my think way of thinking, that certainly creates more of a a stake 
in the society yes. if you are a heavy contributor as a as opposed to a just a beneficiary of other people's efforts yeah i think building something gives you way more interest in how it turns out and i mean you hear people talk about this with the difference between owning and renting i mean i think reagan used to talk about it. nobody nobody washes a rented car yeah <laughs> welfare payments when there's no relation to work or you know any ability or any i mean there's there's a place for people who can't work for, you know who really can't work you know people who are severely disabled and whatnot but for for those who can work if there's no connection to work what are you getting what how does free money make you connected to society? I mean, mm -hmm. In a way, it might make you less connected to society because then you're really not depending on anyone out there. Whereas mm -hmm. we, maybe we used to support each other a little more. Maybe we do, you know, community groups, community fundraisers, that sort of thing. And, you know, if you're just getting handouts from Uncle Sam, you've got no reason to talk to anyone in your community for help or, you know, any sort of assistance. So yeah, that, that part of Will's thesis doesn't, I think, I think we're on the same page with it. I don't think it makes sense. To me, if he's in the contemporary debate of about, uh, let's say universal income, which to me is just a head scratcher because yeah. then it's an even more radical. It's the, it is the logical conclusion, <laughs> the outer, the outer reaches of pure, uh, individualism, radicalized individualism where, where, uh, we no longer have this a need for social cohesion or working together to make our community better. Instead, we can all live in our tiny little silos and play video games or all day long. Yeah, that's exactly how I picture universal basic income. It's it's, just, it's dystopian. It's isolating. I mean, the other problem with it is too. I think the people who push it believe that there are a lot of people in society who have nothing to contribute to America, and that's just that. Well, that's the underlying assumption. Yeah. I think you're right, and and I find it, I find it. Offensive. Yeah, I do too. I mean, it, it's. I think it's a lot of people who are in a lot of high-powered jobs, a lot of highly educated people who look at folks who don't have college or who don't have fancy jobs and say, well, you know, we can replace them with a robot, give them welfare, and everybody's happy. And that, yeah, that's just. Except that they're no, not, I, and and George Will would say the individuals are not healthy, the society's not healthy. Instead, you're going to have higher levels of depression. You're going to have higher levels of anxiety. You're going to have less uh, personal friendships, personal connections. You're going to have less social capital, less social cohesion. You're right, dystopianism. Yeah, it's it's. I mean, that's something I'd, I I wouldn't mind reading more about too. It's just a, a kind of an appalling theory to me. I, I can tell this to you too. Maybe something for, for future mm. reading. <laughs> in the, the last chapter, he kind of goes through and delineates what he views as his vision of conservatism. And I want to just read a few of these, and you probably have them in your notes too, but conservatives should feel a special responsibility and urgency about providing and conserving common character. Conservatism should conserve the institutions most directly responsible for tempering individualism family, church, voluntary associations, local government. And he, he, he kind of caps it off by saying what he means by soul craft. So statecraft as soul craft is basically a con conservation, conservation of values. So that's why he's a conservative because he wants to conserve. And I've kind of grown up with and being kind of conservative my whole life. I, I kind of view it more in economic terms. And uh, what I appreciate from George Will here is he's pushing us to think of it differently. What's the 
the root word of conservatism obviously is to conserve. You know, earlier we talked about what exactly is it that we're conserving. He calls himself a conservative because he wants to conserve these certain traditions and and elements of life and society that uh, build a you know a better society. So conserving common character, conserving the family church, voluntary associations, focusing on local government, conserving the values that the ancients had such a, a focus on of pursuit of excellence and and improving yourself, improving your community. So I thought that was kind of cool. Yeah, I think that that, that makes a lot of sense. And it, it, as the book was going along, it sort of got farther and farther from what I think of as conservatism. But in chapter seven, he kind of brings it back home. And the, one of the, the lines I noticed was, conservatism properly understood begins from the premises about man and the natural that are diametrically opposed to the premises of totalitarians of the left and right. He says, to say that statecraft is soulcraft is not to say that the state should be the primary direct instrument for soulcraft. That starts to make more sense to me. It's, it feels kind of like uh, George Bush's uh, faith-based initiatives thing. Where, mm-hmm. Yeah, nudge in a direction rather than... Yeah, know. and they say, well, if we're, gonna, if we're going to administer programs, why not administer them through local institutions that people already trust rather than just uh, going down to the welfare office and getting a check? You know, if, if money's going to be given out, why not give it out through these local groups, these things that used to mediate society mm-hmm. and temper the individual, as, as Will would say. And that makes some sense. I, I think there's there's always going to be road bumps in that, though, because at some point you're going to be giving money to people who are going to screw it up. I mean, the government does that, too. But, you know, we're not every local institution is really good at handling things. He earlier in the book says, um, you know, conservative welfare principles should focus on incentives. And he talks about tax incentives and disincentives and and using market solutions, free market solutions. And I think the face-based initiative kind of falls in falls in that category. You're using private organizations, private thinking and efficiency in order to achieve these, uh, you know, ostensibly conservative ends. And, and I think you're right. That to me, too, it also reminded me of of George George W. Bush, uh, compassionate conservatism. And again, this is a departure from Goldwater who would say in John Locke, like the government is not, doesn't exist to solve your problems yeah. or even society's problems. It exists to preserve freedom and, <laughs> and protect your property. But compassionate conservatism would say, uh, it's actually here to do more than that. And we just want to do it as we do want to solve some problems. Let's let's be selective, but let's solve. Go out there, and we see problems. Let's try to solve them, but let's do it in a more efficient way. Yeah, he, he makes he makes a good point too about how there are things government's good at, and there are things it's not good at. You know, it's it's good at giving out money. It's not good, great at administering programs. I mean, I think of that a lot in the debate about public education. Would a voucher system be more efficient for every student? You know, just instead of government running schools, just give them. Give people money and let them figure out the schools and contrast that with a system like food stamps, which seems to work. People get the money and they get the food. I mean, there's sometimes they get other stuff, but the government's not running the supermarket or the farm. And you can imagine mm-hmm. what it would look right. like if they did. <laughs> right. Going to the government yeah, supermarket absolutely. would be a mess. Um, In that vein, even, even Obamacare has conceded more to this side where it's still incentive. You're, you're still just getting subsidized to go to the private market. Yeah, that's and a good point. Obviously there's plenty more on the left and even more today than there was in 2009, but who won't have government act as the farm and the grocery store uh, in this case, uh, act as the healthcare provider. 
Yeah, that's a good point. I mean, even if we ever had a serious debate of what single payer is, I think they'd have to drill down on that. Do they want the NHS, like in Britain, where the government's running the hospital, running the doctor's offices? Or do they want a Canadian-style system where it's more, or, or I think the system that prevails in France, too, is more there are private hospitals and the government pays for it. Right now, it's all just Medicare for all. And it, Will returns home to basic conservative values in this last chapter where he's saying, yeah, the government should be, shouldn't be running everything. That's not going to work. We should be encouraging through law, through rhetoric, the strength of private institutions. That, I think that's something that more people on the right could agree to. And, and he ends the book by laying out some of the challenges of conservatism along these lines. He says, what should be conserved? That's, that's something that we need to yeah. figure out. I, and when I was reading that, I thought, Darn, I wish you would have developed that much more yes. because, I mean, that's a that's a good question. Maybe we need right. another book, George Will. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's, that's the question, right? And which portions of traditions need to be transmitted and which need to be relinquished? That's a hard problem because, on the one hand, tradition gave us slavery and Jim Crow, a lack of suffrage for women. You know, those aspects of tradition we don't want to conserve. It's so difficult in a, for human minds, particularly, and especially in politics, where you have the extremes that drive the conversation. You know, it's kind of like either, we conser- e- either we're preserving Jim Crow or, mm. you know, we have to have no tradition whatsoever. You know, we have to, we have to start from square one, like Robespierre. You know, we, we're either we're, we run to the extremes instead of saying like, okay, you know, that's true. That, that was not worth preserving, and I'm glad we've discarded it. But... Some of these other elements is, well, we need to, we do need to preserve those. If not, there's going to be sore consequences. Yeah, I think that's where most people come down to is uh, most people like what we have and would like to tweak a few things. Yeah, you get into this thing in politics, though, and especially in political media, where this is going to be year one of the new way. Everything's, everything's out. And, well, nobody wants that. Mm-hmm. And I think it was somebody I was, it might have been uh, Charles Cook on the, one of the National Review podcasts said that the error that conservatism most often makes is relying too much on tradition and not questioning anything. Whereas the libertarians run into the opposite error of, oh, mm-hmm. what's that there for? Tear it down. And, Whoa. Yeah, <laughs> yeah maybe, maybe yeah. it's there for a reason. <laughs> so, yeah, that's the question. And Will, I wish you would have developed it more also because that's uh, what, what to keep and what to jettison is not a simple question. Maybe we'll get that in some other readings. All right. Do you have any other final thoughts for on George Will Soulcraft, Statecraft, Soulcraft? Well, I think, um, I'll say this: this is the first sort of almost European style uh, we've read. Blurbs on the back of the book refers to Will as a Tory in an approving sense. Mm. Uh, that's from uh, yeah. Russell Kirk. Uh, uh, yeah, it kind of is, and that's that's something that we don't have a ton of in America, but I think we may be getting more of. I hesitate to call it a big government conservative, but that's sort of what it is. Um, that's yeah, yeah. what. That's what the right wing in Europe has been forever. It's interesting to see how many of Will's ideas get developed, uh, like I said, ironically, through Trumpism. Well, it's, it's definitely food for... I feel like this book was clarifying in a way that was helpful for me in uh, seeing some of the contradictions in conservatism and what I have grown up in envisioned conservatism to be, but yet we, we see conservatives, Republicans going in different directions. And, you know, part of he's like frustrated, like, why, you know, why are you... And departing from from the orthodoxy, this George Will is very clarifying, and that's for me because it helps me to see. Also, we do have these other strains that have been important to to conservatism and and what we're trying to achieve. Also, 
and they do contradict and there are some inner inner contradictions and yeah there are there are other goals there are other objectives than just uh, giving people straight freedom we also want to find ways to preserve what's good from the past and i i had initially kind of categorized george will with sort of movement conservatism movement conservatives and uh he definitely is not (laughs) (laughs) to to your point he's much more traditionalist much more the european tory style anyway i thought i thought it was really interesting and gave me a much food for thought all right thanks for listening that's our episode five next time we're going to read robert bork's slouching toward gomorrah so hopefully you'll join us then thanks